This morning we are concluding our series, The Minor Prophets, Who Cares? Uh, We've been playing on a double meaning of who cares. Who cares can mean at least two things. First, who cares can just mean it doesn't matter. It's like speaking to a bunch of empty chairs. No one's there to listen. Uh, So who cares what is said? The second meaning of who cares, it describes a person who is passionate about something. High achievers are people who care about attaining their goals. Both of these meanings of who cares apply to the minor prophets. Minor prophets are the most overlooked books in the Bible, so who cares about the minor prophets? No one reads those books. On the other hand, the prophets were people who cared. They were passionate about faith in the God of Israel, and their passion led them to speak out and challenge the people. And they were prophets, so if it mattered to them, it mattered to God. And in this series, we've looked at some of the minor prophets, discovered what they've cared about, and have allowed them to speak out and challenge us. And we've talked about four of them so far, and I just want you to see if you can remember what they cared about. And so uh, we have a list of them. There they are on the screen. And um, if you think you know, tell the people around you so you get credit for being right, okay? Um, So, uh, Haggai. Do you remember what Haggai cared about? Haggai cared about rebuilding the temple, prioritizing what God is doing over what we are doing. Habakkuk, do you remember what Habakkuk cared about? Cared about keeping watch for what God is going to do next, paying attention to what God is doing in and around you. Uh, Micah, do you remember what Micah cared about? Micah cared about justice and mercy valuing what God values. Malachi, Malachi cared about, if you remember, a living hope. Because of what God has already done, we serve God faithfully with hopeful expectation. This morning, we're going to hear from Nahum. Nahum prophesied against the city of Nineveh, capital of Assyria. And Nahum cared about cruelty and brutality. All of the minor prophets lived during an uncertain time, a time of division and strife, a time when world events were not working in Israel's favor. They lived somewhere between 430 and 730 years before Jesus, and the time of the prophets included things like the fall of the northern kingdom and the fall of the southern kingdom and the exile into Babylon and the eventual return to the promised land, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and the rebuilding of the temple. All of it was an uncertain time. Uh, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Nahum, chapter 3. The Minor Prophets are the last books of the Old Testament. They're relatively short, so it's easy to uh, miss them. Uh, Nahum is the sixth to the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, You can also look Nahum, chapter 3, up on your phones. Now, Nahum prophesies against the city of Nineveh. Now, there's another prophet who prophesied against the city of Nineveh, the most famous of all the minor prophets, I would argue. I'm going to give you one last chance to show off your knowledge and give you a second to tell the person next to you who I'm talking about, okay? Jonah, the same Jonah who was swallowed by the huge fish, uh, he also prophesied to the city of Nineveh. Uh, the Jonah story took a place about mm, 100 years before Nahum. 
Nineveh, capital of Israel, repents when Jonah comes. That's not the case with Nahum. They're not really even given a chance to repent. In fact, while Nahum prophesies against the Ninevites, he never speaks directly to them. His message is for the Israelites, telling them that the Assyrians, who wiped out the northern kingdom and are threatening the southern kingdom, that Assyrian kingdom is about to end. And the Assyrians were known for their cruelty and brutality. And God has had enough. Their time is over. Our scripture reader for this morning is Marie Cunningham. So Marie, go ahead and make your way onto the podium. As she does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And so Marie, whenever you're ready, please read Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and people by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdom your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Marie, thank you very much. You may be seated. Sometimes in the name of fun or teasing, uh, we can be mean to each other. Okay, um, we can say mean things to each other. One of my favorite teasing lines to say that is mean is, hey, I know you're not two-faced, because if you were two-faced, you wouldn't be wearing the one you have on. Um, we have a day every year where it is expected to do mean things to one another in the name of fun. It is April Fool's Day. I know of a family, not my family, but I know of a family that on April Fool's Day would take the, fillings, the filling out of Oreo cookies, replace it with toothpaste, and then give it to their kids to take it to school to give them to their friends. Um, siblings, brothers and sisters, they play tricks on each other all the time. My favorite story I've heard is about two brothers, and they lived in the Midwest. Now, if you ever lived in the Midwest or a place where tornadoes are a real threat, um, you know that many towns will have sirens, and the, they will play the sirens um, when there is a tornado watch or warning. And the sirens are really loud, like you can be anywhere in town, and you will hear the siren. Well, there were these two brothers that lived in such a town, and the older brother told his younger brother that those sirens were a government warning of aliens invading from outer space. 
And when the aliens would invade from outer space, they would take human form. And so he put some coloring in some water and put it in a spray bottle and gave it to his younger brother and said, when you hear the siren, that means the aliens have taken human form. And this spray will melt anyone who's an alien. And so spray any humans you see with this spray. So one day the sirens go, the younger brother gets a bottle of water and he sprays his dad and grandmother. Um, we like to do mean things to each other. You know, just for fun, just for fun. Now, the Assyrians were known for being mean, but it wasn't just for fun. Who cares about the Ninevites? Well, back in Nahum's day, everybody did. It was the capital of Assyria, Nineveh was. And the Assyrians were the superpower of the region, and they were the dominant force. And what made them such a dominant force was their military, and their military was infamous for their cruelty, for their cruelty. And Nahum talks about it in verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And jumping down to verse 4, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. The Assyrians to this day are still considered one of the most brutal societies in history. They were ruthless. And part of their strategy, military strategy, was psychological warfare. They wanted to terrify the other nations into submission. And their vicious acts were carved into their walls as part of their history. They would routinely torture those that they conquered, usually targeting the nobility. And they were famous for all sorts of different kinds of torture. Uh, they would impale, the upper uh, right uh, carving there shows them impaling people on stakes. Um, it was their form of mass execution where they would drive the stake from under the ribs and the people impaled did not die quickly. It was a slow, painful death. And it was a precursor to crucifixions which the Assyrians would also develop for even a more excruciating death. The carving in the lower left is a carving of the Assyrians flaying people, which is the process of removing strips of people's skin. And they would do this while their victims were still alive. And then they would hang the skin in the city that they conquered for all other citizens to see. Again, their brutality was meant to terrify the conquered people into submission. The Assyrians, if you look on the lower right, they also beheaded their captives, which after flaying, oddly enough, doesn't seem that bad, but they would hang the heads from trees, build little pyramids out of them, even make necklaces with them. It was absolutely disgusting. They would amputate, gouge out eyes, burn people alive, including children. Their cruelty was unimaginable. Now, how do you get like that? How do you become the type of people where that level of brutality becomes normal? There is a psychological term called habituation. And the technical definition is when a response to a stimulus decreases after repeated or prolonged presentations of that stimulus. My paraphrase of that would be, the more we experience something, the more normal it becomes. 
You eat hot sauce once, it burns like crazy. If you eat hot sauce every day, after a while, it's not that bad. You go from the air conditioning to the heat outside, it feels really hot. But if you're in the heat all day, every day, you get used to it. The, the Assyrian Empire became more and more cruel, so eventually things like beheadings and flaying and impaling, it became normal. They just kind of got used to it. Now that couldn't happen to us, could it? Where we become callous to the suffering around us? In May, there were two mass shootings that made the news, one in Buffalo, one in Texas. The one in Buffalo resulted in 10 deaths. The one in Texas, 21 deaths. The one in Texas was a school shooting, so many of the 21 were children. Also, in the month of May, there were 16 other instances where six or more people were shot in a mass shooting. And in some of those instances, people died. None of those 16 made the national news. Why? Because we are used to mass shootings. Now, there's a debate over what we should do about mass shootings. I'm not advocating one solution or another. I'm just pointing out that someone shooting six people at once is so normal that it's not even worthy of national news. In the last month, there were two instances of immigrants, massive amounts of immigrants dying. Uh, 53 immigrants died in a truck in Texas, and another 17 died in the Bahamas after their boat capsized. Both were instances of human smuggling. Human smuggling is so common, we're used to stories like this. And again, there's a debate over what to do about human smuggling. I'm not advocating one solution over another. I'm just pointing out it happens all the time, and life goes on. The war in Ukraine is still happening. And when it first started in February, it was all the news. Now when we hear an update about it, oh yeah, that's right, there's a war in the Ukraine. And life goes on. With the internet and social media, we're aware of more and more tragedy. And let's be honest, we don't have the emotional energy for all of it. So when we hear about something horrible, Again, we, we don't have the time, we don't have the energy just to get worked up about every single instance because there's so much all the time. So we say, that's horrible. That's horrible. And then we eat dinner. We can't help with everything. And we can't be passionate about everything. But we do have to be careful that we don't become callous to the cruelty that happens around us. So Nahum addressed their cruelty and brutality, and he says that God is going to do something about it. There will be consequences. And we read about these consequences in verses two and three where it says, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. And jumping down to verse 5. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. 
Verses 2 and 3 give a description of what is going to happen. War is coming for Nineveh and the Assyrians. The empire that was known for bringing death and destruction is having death and destruction come to it. The empire, known for striking fear in her adversaries, is now struck with fear. It's the old, live by the sword, die by the sword. As mentioned earlier, this prophecy was shared with Israel, not Assyria. It was a message for Israel. You see, Assyria was threatening Israel. It had already wiped out the northern kingdom. It was threatening the southern kingdom. The brutality of Assyria is well known. And the problem for the Israelites, what they have to try to reconcile, is that Assyria is rich and successful. How does that work? The ones who impale and behead and flay and amputate are the ones with power, the ones with the wealth, the ones calling the shots. And Israel needed this message because they had to be wondering, maybe we have this wrong. Maybe the God of Israel isn't in charge. Maybe it's the God of the Assyrians. Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The Israelites had a good idea of how they thought God should have punished the evil Assyrians and reward the good Israelites. They were God's people, the Assyrians weren't. But God wasn't behaving how they thought he should be behaving. God even used the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom when that kingdom was not faithful to God. And while that was dumbfounding to the Israelites, now it was the time for the Assyrians to be held to account for their actions. And what needs to be understood is that God is God. He will act in his time and in his way. He asks us to remain faithful as he works everything out. And God is just and will deliver justice, but not in the way we think he should deliver justice. God is not mocked. Consequences will come in his way, not our way, in his time, not our time. God is patient with us. We can be patient with God. There is cruelty, there are consequences, and Nahum ends with talking about comfort. More accurately, a lack of comfort for Nineveh, as it says in verse 7. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? The prophet Nahum, his name means comfort, which is odd because his prophecy doesn't seem to be one of comfort. Nahum wasn't bringing comfort for Nineveh. Nahum's message, if you remember, was to the Israelites. It was to bring comfort to them. When the Nazis were defeated in World War II, nobody felt bad for them. The more that was learned about their cruelty, 
their concentration camps, the experiments they performed on kids, their plan to wipe out the Jewish race, the better the world felt that they were decimated. It gave the world comfort. When news came that the Assyrians would be defeated, it was a cause to rejoice because this empire, known for its brutality, was no more. When an individual or group lives in such a way that their mere presence is a cause for fear, well, it's comforting when they're not around. And God says about the Assyrians, who will mourn for her? And the answer is, no one, <laughs> no one was going to mourn for that empire to end. You know, most of us, we like to think that when our time comes to pass away, that we will be missed, that we will be mourned. And while loss always brings a sense of grief, some loss is more painful than others. The people who have been a blessing to us, well, we will mourn them more. And the people who have brought chaos into our lives, we're going to mourn them less. Here's a good question for all of us. Based upon how we live, who will mourn if you are gone? Do our lives bring blessings to others? Do our lives bring chaos to others? The truth is, for all of us, we bring some of both. But let me just challenge all of us to do a life inventory. Often, we just kind of live life with no idea how we impact others. We just kind of do our thing. I know I do. So let's take some time, whether it's today, sometime this week, to reflect on this. How do I bring blessings to others? And how do I bring chaos to others? Again, we all do both. But do you know how you do each? Do you know which you do more? Who will mourn if you are gone? And the reality of the gospel, the reality of the gospel is God comforts the discouraged. Again, Nahum means comfort. And Nahum brought comfort to Israel. And the word Nahum, it appears in the New Testament. It shows up in the name of a significant town. A town called Capernaum. The Gospel of Matthew says that Jesus left Nazareth to live in Capernaum. It was basically his home base for ministry in the region of Galilee. And Capernaum is made up of two Hebrew words. Kafir, which means village, and Nahum, which means comfort. So Capernaum is the village of comfort. And it is fitting that Jesus would make the village of comfort his headquarters for ministry. Because that's what his ministry is all about. To comfort the afflicted. In fact, shortly after he moved to Capernaum from Nazareth, he took his disciples up a hillside. A hillside not far from Capernaum. 
and he taught them in what is now known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in that Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Jesus said was, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or as it says in Psalm 34, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There's plenty of brokenness in the world. We have all experienced our share of pain. And many times, we can handle it. We can handle the pain. Life is hard, we get it. So when tough times come, we suck it up and we just tough it out. You know, as the saying goes, tough times don't last, but tough people do. Many times, we handle the suffering that life gives. But there are moments, there are moments when it's too much. And if we're honest, those times when it's too much are much more often than we care to admit. It is too much for us to handle. And so in the silence of our suffering, we privately call out to God. And the good news is that while God knows all the suffering that happens in all parts of the entire world, he never grows callous. He doesn't just say that's horrible and then just go on with life. Our suffering spurs God's compassion. He pays attention to our pain. And the cross reminds us that Jesus was willing to suffer to address our suffering, that he would leave his comfort to bring us comfort. And our ultimate source of suffering is death. And when Jesus died, he destroyed the power of death. And his resurrection is our eternal source of hope. So whatever form that our suffering takes next, we have hope. Hope, knowing that God comforts the discouraged. Hope, even in the face of death. Please pray with me. And Lord, it is for that hope that we thank you. And Lord, I would ask that anyone who is here this morning or maybe watching online this morning and they find themselves in a place where it's just too much, I would ask that you would meet them in their suffering and bring them comfort. And Lord, soften our hearts. And Lord, uh, continue to shape us into the kind of people who bring comfort into the suffering of our world. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.